0: BOULE de Suif by Guida Maupassant Part two Although the coach had come to a standstill, no one got out. It looked as if they were afraid of being murdered the moment they left their seats. Thereupon the driver appeared, holding in his hand one of his lanterns, which cast a sudden glow on the interior of the coach, lighting up the double row of startled faces, mouths agape and eyes wide open in surprise and terror. Beside the driver stood in the full light a German officer, a tall young man, fair and slender, tightly encased in his uniform like a woman in her corset, his flat, shiny cap tilted to one side of his head, making him look like an English hotel runner. His exaggerated moustache, long and straight, and tapering to a point at either end in a single blonde hair that could hardly be seen, seemed to weigh down the corners of his mouth and give a droop to his lips. In Alsatian French he requested the travellers to alight, saying stiffly, Kindly get down, ladies and gentlemen. The two nuns were the first to obey, manifesting the docility of holy women accustomed to submission on every occasion. Next appeared the Count and Countess, followed by the manufacturer and his wife, after whom came Loiseau, pushing his larger and better half before him. "'Good day, sir,' he said to the officer, as he put his foot to the ground, acting on an impulse born of prudence rather than of politeness. The other, "'Insolent like all in authority, "'merely stared without replying. "'Bull de Suif and Cornudet, though near the door, "'were the last to alight, grave and dignified before the enemy. "'The stout girl tried to control herself and appear calm. "'The Democrat stroked his long russet beard "'with a somewhat trembling hand. "'Both strove to maintain their dignity.' "'knowing well that at such a time "'each individual is always looked upon "'as more or less typical of his nation. "'And also, resenting the complacent attitude "'of their companions, "'Bull de Suif tried to wear a bolder front "'than her neighbors, the virtuous women, "'while he, feeling that it was incumbent on him "'to set a good example, "'kept up the attitude of resistance "'which he had first assumed "'when he undertook to mine the high roads round Rouen.' They entered the spacious kitchen of the inn, and the German, having demanded the passport signed by the general in command, in which were mentioned the name, description, and profession of each traveller, inspected them all minutely, comparing their appearance with the written particulars. Then he said brusquely, "'All right,' and turned on his heel. They breathed freely. All were still hungry.' "'so supper was ordered. "'Half an hour was required for its preparation, "'and while two servants were apparently engaged in getting it ready, "'the travellers went to look at their rooms. "'These all opened off a long corridor, "'at the end of which was a glazed door with a number on it. "'They were just about to take their seats at table "'when the innkeeper appeared in person. "'He was a former horse-dealer, "'a large, asthmatic individual,' always wheezing coughing and clearing his throat foulenvi was his patronymic he called mademoiselle elizabeth Rousset. Bull de Suif started and turned round that is my name mademoiselle the prussian officer wishes to speak to you immediately to me yes if you are mademoiselle elizabeth Rousset. she hesitated reflected a moment and then declared roundly, "'That may be, but I'm not going.' They moved restlessly around her. Everyone wondered and speculated as to the cause of this order. The Count approached. "'You are wrong, madam, for your refusal may bring trouble not only on yourself, but also on all your companions. It never pays to resist those in authority.' "'Your compliance with this request cannot possibly be fraught with any danger. "'It has probably been made because some formality or other was forgotten.' "'All added their voices to that of the Count. "'Boule de Suif was begged, urged, lectured, and at last convinced. "'Everyone was afraid of the complications "'which might result from headstrong action on her part. "'She said finally, "'I am doing it for your sakes.' "'Remember that.' "'The Countess took her hand. "'And we are grateful to you.' "'She left the room. "'All waited for her return before commencing the meal. "'Each was distressed that he or she had not been sent for, "'rather than this impulsive, quick-tempered girl, "'and each mentally rehearsed platitudes "'in case of being summoned also. "'But at the end of ten minutes she reappeared, "'breathing hard, crimson with indignation. "'Oh, the scoundrel! The scoundrel!' she stammered. "'All were anxious to know what had happened, "'but she declined to enlighten them. "'And when the Count pressed the point, "'she silenced him with much dignity, saying, "'No, the matter has nothing to do with you, "'and I cannot speak of it.' "'Then they took their places round a high soup tureen.' "'from which issued an odor of cabbage. "'In spite of this coincidence, the supper was cheerful. "'The cider was good. "'The Loiseaux's and the nuns drank it from motives of economy. "'The others ordered wine. Cornudet demanded beer. "'He had his own fashion of uncorking the bottle "'and making the beer foam.' "'gazing at it as he inclined his glass and then raised it to a position between the lamp and his eye that he might judge of its color. "'When he drank, his great beard, which matched the color of his favorite beverage, seemed to tremble with affection. "'His eyes positively squinted in the endeavor not to lose sight of the beloved glass.' And he looked for all the world as if he were fulfilling the only function for which he was born. He seemed to have established in his mind an affinity between the two great passions of his life, pale ale and revolution, and assuredly he could not taste the one without dreaming of the other. Monsieur and Madame Follenvie dined at the end of the table. The man, wheezing like a broken-down locomotive, was too short-winded to talk when he was eating. But the wife was not silent a moment. She told how the Prussians had impressed her on their arrival, what they did, what they said, execrating them in the first place because they cost her money, and in the second because she had two sons in the army. She addressed herself principally to the Countess, flattered at the opportunity of talking to a lady of quality." Then she lowered her voice, and began to broach delicate subjects. Her husband interrupted her from time to time, saying, "'You would do well to hold your tongue, Madame Follonby.' But she took no notice of him, and went on. "'Yes, Madame, these Germans do nothing but eat potatoes and pork, and then pork and potatoes. And don't imagine for a moment that they are clean. No, indeed.' and if only you saw them drilling for hours, indeed for days, together. They all collect in a field, then they do nothing but march backward and forward, and wheel this way and that. If only they would cultivate the land, or remain at home and work on their high roads. Really, madame, these soldiers are of no earthly use. Poor people have to feed and keep them, only in order that they may learn how to kill. True." I am only an old woman with no education. But when I see them wearing themselves out, marching from morning till night, I say to myself, when there are people who make discoveries that are of use to people, why should others take so much trouble to do harm? Really, now, isn't it a terrible thing to kill people, whether they are Prussians or English or Poles or French? If we revenge ourselves on anyone who injures us, we do wrong and are punished for it. "'but when our sons are shot down like partridges, that is all right, "'and decorations are given to the man who kills the most. "'No, indeed, I shall never be able to understand it.' "'Cornyadet raised his voice. "'War is a barbarous proceeding when we attack a peaceful neighbor, "'but it is a sacred duty when undertaken in defense of one's country.' "'The old woman looked down.' Yes, it's another matter when one acts in self-defense. But would it not be better to kill all the kings, seeing that they make war just to amuse themselves? Cornudet's eyes kindled. Bravo, citizens, he said. Monsieur Carre-Lamedon was reflecting profoundly. Although an ardent admirer of great generals— The peasant woman's sturdy common sense made him reflect on the wealth which might accrue to a country by the employment of so many idle hands now maintained at a great expense, of so much unproductive force, if they were employed in those great industrial enterprises which it will take centuries to complete. But Loiseau, leaving his seat, went over to the innkeeper and began chatting in a low voice. The big man chuckled, coughed, sputtered, his enormous carcass shook with merriment at the pleasantries of the other, and he ended by buying six casks of claret from Loiseau, to be delivered in spring, after the departure of the Prussians. The moment supper was over, everyone went to bed, worn out with fatigue. But Loiseau, who had been making his observations on the sly, sent his wife to bed, and amused himself by placing first his ear, and then his eye to the bedroom keyhole, in order to discover what he called the Mysteries of the Corridor. At the end of about an hour he heard a rustling, peeped out quickly, and caught sight of Boule de Suif, looking more rotund than ever in a dressing-gown of blue cashmere trimmed with white lace. She held a candle in her hand, and directed her steps to the numbered door at the end of the corridor but one of the side-doors was partly opened, and when, at the end of a few minutes, she returned, Cornudet, in his shirt-sleeves, followed her. They spoke in low tones, then stopped short. Boule seemed to be stoutly denying him admission to her room. Unfortunately, Loiseau could not at first hear what they said, but toward the end of the conversation they raised their voices, and he caught a few words. Cornyadet was loudly insistent. "'How silly you are! What does it matter to you?' he said. She seemed indignant, and replied, "'No, my good man. There are times when one does not do that sort of thing. Besides, in this place it would be shameful.' Apparently he did not understand, and asked the reason. Then she lost her temper and her caution— and raising her voice still higher, said, "'Why? Can't you understand why? "'When there are Prussians in the house, "'perhaps even in the very next room?' He was silent. The patriotic shame of this wanton, who would not suffer herself to be caressed in the neighborhood of the enemy, must have roused his dormant dignity. For after bestowing on her a simple kiss, he crept softly back to his room. Loiseau, much edified, capered round the bedroom before taking his place beside his slumbering spouse. Then silence reigned throughout the house. But soon there arose from some remote part, it might easily have been either cellar or attic, a stertorous, monotonous, regular snoring, a dull, prolonged rumbling, varied by tremors like those of a boiler under pressure of steam. Monsieur Follinville, had gone to sleep. As they had decided on starting at eight o'clock the next morning, everyone was in the kitchen at that hour. But the coach, its roof covered with snow, stood by itself in the middle of the yard, without either horses or driver. They sought the latter in the stables, coach-houses, and barns, but in vain. So the men of the party resolved to scour the country for him, and sallied forth. They found themselves in the square, with the church at the farther side, and to right and left low-roofed houses where there were some Prussian soldiers. The first soldier they saw was peeling potatoes. The second, farther on, was washing out a barber's shop. Another, bearded to the eyes, was fondling a crying infant, and dandling it on his knees to quiet it. And the stout peasant women— whose menfolk were for the most part at the war, were, by means of signs, telling their obedient conquerors what work they were to do—chop wood, prepare soup, grind coffee. One of them even was doing the washing for his hostess, an infirm old grandmother. The Count, astonished at what he saw, questioned the beetle who was coming out of the presbytery. The old man answered, Oh, those men are not all a bad sort. They are not Prussians, I am told. They come from somewhere farther off. I don't exactly know where. And they have all left wives and children behind them. They are not fond of war, either, you may be sure. I am sure they are mourning for the men where they come from, just as we do here. And the war causes them just as much unhappiness as it does us. As a matter of fact, things are not so very bad here just now because the soldiers do no harm, and work just as if they were in their own homes. You see, poor folk always help one another. It is the great ones of this world who make war." Cornudet, indignant at the friendly understanding established between conquerors and conquered, withdrew, preferring to shut himself up in the inn. "'They are repeopling the country,' jested Loiseau. "'They are undoing the harm they have done,' said M. carole gravely. But they could not find the coach-driver. At last he was discovered in the village café, fraternizing cordially with the officers orderly. "'Were you not told to harness the horses at eight o'clock?' demanded the Count. "'Oh, yes, but I've had different orders since.' "'What orders?' "'Not to harness at all.' "'Who gave you such orders?' "'Why, the Prussian officer.' "'But why?' "'I don't know. Go and ask him. I am forbidden to harness the horses, so I don't harness them. That's all.' "'Did he tell you so himself?' "'No, sir. The innkeeper gave me the order from him.' "'When?' "'Last evening, just as I was going to bed.' The three men returned in a very uneasy frame of mind. They asked for Monsieur Follonville, but the servant replied that on account of his asthma he never got up before ten o'clock. They were strictly forbidden to rouse him earlier, except in case of fire. They wished to see the officer, but that also was impossible, although he lodged in the inn. Monsieur Follonville alone was authorized to interview him on civil matters. So they waited. The women returned to their rooms and occupied themselves with trivial matters. Cornudet settled down beside the tall kitchen fireplace before a blazing fire. He had a small table and a jug of beer placed beside him, and he smoked his pipe, a pipe which enjoyed among Democrats a consideration almost equal to his own, as though it had served its country in serving Cornudet. It was a fine meerschaum, admirably colored to a black the shade of its owner's teeth, but sweet-smelling, gracefully curved, at home in its master's hand, and completing his physiognomy. And Cornudet sat motionless, his eyes fixed now on the dancing flames, now on the froth which crowned his beer. And after each draught he passed his long, thin fingers with an air of satisfaction through his long, greasy hair as he sucked the foam from his mustache. Loiseau, under pretense of stretching his legs, went out to see if he could sell wine to the country dealers. The Count and the manufacturer began to talk politics. They forecast the future of France. One believed in the Orléans dynasty, the other in an unknown savior, a hero who should rise up in the last extremity, a Du perhaps a Joan of Arc, or another Napoleon I? Ah, if only the Prince Imperial were not so young! Cornudet, listening to them, smiled like a man who holds the keys of destiny in his hands. His pipe perfumed the whole kitchen. As the clock struck ten, Monsieur Follenvie appeared. He was immediately surrounded and questioned, but could only repeat—' three or four times in succession, and without variation, the words, The officer said to me, just like this, Monsieur Follenvie, you will forbid them to harness up the coach for those travellers to-morrow. They are not to start without an order from me. You hear? That is sufficient." Then they asked to see the officer. The Count sent him his card, on which Monsieur caire also inscribed his name and titles. The Prussian sent word that the two men would be admitted to see him after his luncheon, that is to say, about one o'clock. The ladies appeared, and they all ate a little, in spite of their anxiety. Boule de Suif appeared ill, and very much worried. They were finishing their coffee when the orderly came to fetch the gentlemen. Loiseau joined the other two but when they tried to get Cornudet to accompany them, by way of adding greater solemnity to the occasion, he declared proudly that he would never have anything to do with the Germans, and resuming his seat in the chimney-corner, he called for another jug of beer. The three men went upstairs, and were ushered into the best room in the inn, where the officer received them lolling at his ease in an armchair, his feet on the mantelpiece smoking a long porcelain pipe, and enveloped in a gorgeous dressing-gown, doubtless stolen from the deserted dwelling of some citizen destitute of taste in dress. He neither rose, greeted them, nor even glanced in their direction. He afforded a fine example of that insolence of bearing which seems natural to the victorious soldier. After the lapse of a few moments he said in his halting French, "'What do you want?' "'We wish to start on our journey,' said the Count. "'No.' "'May I ask the reason of your refusal?' "'Because I don't choose.' "'I would respectfully call your attention, monsieur, to the fact that your general-in-command gave us a permit to proceed to Dieppe, and I do not think we have done anything to deserve this harshness at your hands.' "'I don't choose. That's all. You may go.' They bowed, and retired. The afternoon was wretched. They could not understand the caprice of this German, and the strangest ideas came into their heads. They all congregated in the kitchen, and talked the subject to death, imagining all kinds of unlikely things. Perhaps they were to be kept as hostages, but for what reason? Or to be extradited as prisoners of war? or possibly they were to be held for ransom. They were panic-stricken at this last supposition. The richest among them were the most alarmed, seeing themselves forced to empty bags of gold into the insolent soldiers' hands in order to buy back their lives. They racked their brains for plausible lies whereby they might conceal the fact that they were rich, and pass themselves off as poor—very poor. Loiseau took off his watch-chain and put it in his pocket. The approach of night increased their apprehension. The lamp was lighted, and as it wanted yet two hours to dinner, Madame Loiseau proposed a game of un It would distract their thoughts. The rest agreed, and Cornudet himself joined the party, first putting out his pipe for politeness' sake. The Count shuffled the cards, dealt, and Boulle de Suif had thirty-one to start with. Soon the interest of the game assuaged the anxiety of the players, but Cornudet noticed that Loiseau and his wife were in league to cheat. They were about to sit down to dinner when Monsieur Follinville appeared, and in his grating voice announced, The Prussian officer sends to ask Mademoiselle Elizabeth Rousset if she has changed her mind yet. Boulle de Suif stood still pale as death. Then, suddenly turning crimson with anger, she gasped out, "'Kindly tell that scoundrel, that cur, that carrion of oppression, that I will never consent. You understand? Never, never, never!' The fat innkeeper left the room. Then Boule de Suif was surrounded, questioned, entreated on all sides to reveal the mystery of her visit to the officer. She refused at first, but her wrath soon got the better of her. "'What does he want? "'He wants to make me his mistress,' she cried. No one was shocked at the word. So great was the general indignation. Cornudet broke his jug as he banged it down on the table. A loud outcry arose against this base soldier. All were furious. They drew together in common resistance against the foe, as if some part of the sacrifice exacted of Boule de Suif had been demanded of each. The Count declared, with supreme disgust, that those people behaved like ancient barbarians. The women, above all, manifested a lively and tender sympathy for Boule de Suif. The nuns, who appeared only at meals, cast down their eyes and said nothing." They dined, however, as soon as the first indignant outburst had subsided. But they spoke little, and thought much. The ladies went to bed early, and the men, having lighted their pipes, proposed a game of a cart, in which Monsieur Follenvie was invited to join, the travelers hoping to question him skillfully as to the best means of vanquishing the officer's obduracy. But he thought of nothing but his cards would listen to nothing, reply to nothing, and repeated, time after time, "'Attend to the game, gentlemen! Attend to the game!' So absorbed was his attention that he even forgot to expectorate. The consequence was that his chest gave forth rumbling sounds like those of an organ. His wheezing lungs struck every note of the asthmatic scale— from deep, hollow tones to a shrill, hoarse piping resembling that of a young cock trying to crow. He refused to go to bed when his wife, overcome with sleep, came to fetch him. So she went off alone, for she was an early bird, always up with the sun, while he was addicted to late hours, ever ready to spend the night with friends. He merely said, Put my eggnog by the fire, and went on with the game. When the other men saw that nothing was to be got out of him, they declared it was time to retire, and each sought his bed. They rose fairly early the next morning, with a vague hope of being allowed to start, a greater desire than ever to do so, and a terror at having to spend another day in this wretched little inn. Alas! The horses remained in the stable. The driver was invisible they spent their time for want of something better to do in wandering round the coach. Luncheon was a gloomy affair, and there was a general coolness toward Bull de Suif, for night, which brings counsel, had somewhat modified the judgment of her companions. In the cold light of the morning they almost bore a grudge against the girl for not having secretly sought out the Prussian, that the rest of the party might receive a joyful surprise when they awoke." what more simple? Besides, who would have been the wiser? She might have saved appearances by telling the officer that she had taken pity on their distress. Such a step would be of so little consequence to her. But no one as yet confessed to such thoughts. In the afternoon, seeing that they were all bored to death, the Count proposed a walk in the neighborhood of the village. Each one wrapped himself up well— and the little party set out, leaving behind only Cornudet, who preferred to sit over the fire, and the two nuns, who were in the habit of spending their day in the church or at the presbytery. The cold, which grew more intense each day, almost froze the noses and ears of the pedestrians. Their feet began to pain them so that each step was a penance and when they reached the open country it looked so mournful and depressing in its limitless mantle of white that they all hastily retraced their steps, with bodies benumbed and hearts heavy. The four women walked in front, and the three men followed a little in the rear. Loiseau, who saw perfectly well how matters stood, asked suddenly if that trollop were going to keep them waiting much longer in this godforsaken spot. The Count, always courteous, replied that they could not exact so painful a sacrifice from any woman, and that the first move must come from herself. M. Carlemadon remarked that if the French, as they talked of doing, made a counter-attack by way of Dieppe, their encounter with the enemy must inevitably take place at Tote. This reflection made the other two anxious. "'Supposing we escape on foot,' said Loiseau, The Count shrugged his shoulders. "'How can you think of such a thing, in this snow, and with our wives? Besides, we should be pursued at once, overtaken in ten minutes, and brought back as prisoners at the mercy of the soldiery.' This was true enough. They were silent. The ladies talked of dress, but a certain constraint seemed to prevail among them. Suddenly, at the end of the street, the officer appeared. His tall, wasp-like, uniformed figure was outlined against the snow which bounded the horizon, and he walked, knees apart, with that motion peculiar to soldiers, who are always anxious not to soil their carefully polished boots. He bowed as he passed the ladies, then glanced scornfully at the men, who had sufficient dignity not to raise their hats, though Loiseau made a movement to do so boule de suif flushed crimson to the ears, and the three married women felt unutterably humiliated at being met thus by the soldier in company with the girl whom he had treated with such scant ceremony. Then they began to talk about him, his figure, and his face. Madame Carole who had known many officers, and judged them as a connoisseur, thought him not at all bad-looking. She even regretted that he was not a Frenchman because in that case he would have made a very handsome hussar, with whom all the women would assuredly have fallen in love. When they were once more within doors they did not know what to do with themselves. Sharp words, even, were exchanged apropos of the merest trifles. The silent dinner was quickly over, and each one went to bed early in the hope of sleeping and thus killing time. They came down next morning, with tired faces and irritable tempers. The women scarcely spoke to Boule de Suif. A church-bell summoned the faithful to a baptism. Boule de Suif had a child being brought up by peasants at Yves Tote. She did not see him once a year, and never thought of him. But the idea of the child who was about to be baptized induced a sudden wave of tenderness for her own and she insisted on being present at the ceremony. As soon as she had gone out, the rest of the company looked at one another and drew their chairs together, for they realized that they must decide on some course of action. Loiseau had an inspiration. He proposed that they should ask the officer to detain Boule de Suif only, and to let the rest depart on their way. Monsieur Follenvie was entrusted with this commission but he returned to them almost immediately. The German, who knew human nature, had shown him the door. He intended to keep all the travelers, until his condition had been complied with. Whereupon Madame Loiseau's vulgar temperament broke bounds. "'We're not going to die of old age here,' she cried. Since it's that vixen's trade to behave so with men, I don't see that she has any right to refuse one more than another. I may as well tell you, she took any lover she could get at Rouen. Even coachman. Yes, indeed, madame, the coachman at the prefecture. I know it for a fact, for he buys his wine of us. And now that it is a question of getting us out of a difficulty, she puts on virtuous airs, the drab. For my part, I think this officer has behaved very well. Why, there were three others of us any one of whom he would undoubtedly have preferred. But no, he contents himself with the girl who is common property. He respects married women. Just think, he is master here. He had only to say, I wish it, and he might have taken us by force, with the help of his soldiers." The two other women shuddered. The eyes of pretty Madame Carole glistened, and she grew pale as if the officer were indeed in the act of laying violent hands on her. The men, who had been discussing the subject among themselves, drew near. Loiseau, in a state of furious resentment, was for delivering up that miserable woman bound hand and foot into the enemy's power. But the Count descended from three generations of ambassadors, and endowed, moreover, with the lineaments of a diplomat, was in favor of more tactful measures. We must persuade her, he said. Then they laid their plans.